Welcome to Transforming Education, Leadership Lessons. This podcast is hosted by Northwestern College. We're bringing you thought leaders who are influencing education and the world around them. Each episode provides new leadership lessons so you can learn how to embrace your own influence. Leadership has nothing to do with title or position. That leadership has to do with impact. And the role of a leader isn't to create followers, it's to enable more leaders. Take away leadership qualities that inspire. I think good leaders really get people brought together around a cause and can inspire them to be better than they were yesterday or to do something great. Care about others. We need teachers out there that are caring and compassionate and are interested in the student beyond the discipline that they're teaching. Show people they matter. We don't have a bullying problem. We don't even have a gun problem. We have a mattering problem. By knowing you matter. You matter to yourself first before you can matter to someone else. So further your impact. When you just authentically love your students, I just don't think you can help but grow. Understand your core values. You can tell pretty quickly any core leader, whether or not he or she is there for the mission at hand for the people that they serve or whether they're there for themselves. And align your mission. Everything we do on campus, whether it's someone in the maintenance department or someone teaching in the classroom or to coach, uh, it should tie back to our mission of impacting students for the cause of Christ. Discover how to use your influence to inspire others. That is why the relationships is so critical in everything we do, because when people know you care about them, they know yet they have your best interest, and then it sinks in. Thank you for joining us again on Transforming Education Leadership Lessons, where we bring in thought partners to inspire and influence your leadership. I'm Leslie Stover. I'll be your pinch hitter or pinch host for Gary on this episode. Since he also coaches basketball, I, I feel I need to add some type of sports reference in here. Uh, our guest today is Jacob Morgan. Jacob is a best-selling author and one of the world's leading authorities on leadership, the future of work, and employee experience. He's a highly sought after keynote speaker and advisor who has worked with organizations such as Microsoft, Disney, Pepsi, MasterCard, IBM, and the list goes on. A professionally trained futurist, Jacob's insights are frequently featured in publications such as Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, and The Harvard Business Review. Jacob has written the books The Future Leader, The Employee Experience Advantage, The Future of Work, and The Collaborative Organization. You can find all of Jacob's information, learn more about him, connect on social, or inquire to work with him by visiting thefutureorganization.com. So Jacob, welcome to the podcast. We are so honored to have you here. Thank you for having me. Is there anything that I failed to mention on your, your stacked resume that you would add? <laughs> no, I think you covered everything. Great. Well, you're not only considered the leading authority on the future of work right now, but you've also hosted some of the world's top business leaders and thinkers on your own podcast, Leading the Future of Work. So before yep. we dive into discussing your work and your books, um, what has your path looked like to get to where you are today? It's not a very linear path, and I guess it depends on how far back you want to go. Uh, but if I were to go back even to the college days, I went to the University of California, Santa Cruz. I double majored in economics and psychology. Uh, prior to college, I was always really quite a terrible student. Uh, in college, though, I did well. I graduated with honors and a double major. And I went to Southern California, which is where I am from, and got my job working for a company. And when I interviewed there, I was promised that I would be doing all these really wonderful and great things. And so I took the job uh, and it was a long commute. It was an hour and a half each way. So three hours a day driving. Uh, but again, I took the job because I was promised 
that it would be a great company. I'd be doing meaningful work, all that usual sort of stuff. And so a couple of months into my job, I'm doing data entry and cold calling and PowerPoint presentations, which is not what I signed up for. And then one day the CEO comes out of his beautiful corner office and he says he has a very important project for me. So naturally I got very excited. I thought I paid my dues and I ran over to the CEO and I said, you know, what is it? What can I do? You know, something exciting happening. And he gives me a $10 bill and says, I need you to run down to Starbucks and give me a uh, cup of coffee. No. Uh, and he says, you can get yourself a latte as well. And so that was one of the last full-time jobs I ever had working for anybody else. Yes. And I became very disenfranchised uh, with the corporate world. That was around 15 years ago. At that time, I was involved in a lot of like search engine optimization, online marketing, affiliate marketing kind of stuff. And it just kind of evolved into social media consulting. And these tools were being used inside of organizations to connect sure. employees. So then it evolved into that. And it all kind of just stemmed from that and that cup of coffee and having a terrible job. <laughs> yes, yeah, some of our brightest futures start with the worst experiences, don't they? Else we would never yep. get there, I think. I love that. So in your book, uh, The Future Leader, where you talk about nine skills and mindsets to succeed in the next decade, you share that the leadership we knew about 10 years ago is not what it is today. And more importantly, leadership today is not what it will be 10 years from now. So yep. in your research, you interviewed over 140 CEOs from around the world, representing 7 million people. 35 industries and 20 countries to determine what the future leader will look like. I can tell you like data. A series of 12 questions were asked of all those CEOs. So your work in this topic is, is really quite comprehensive. Uh, were there other groups or resources that you included in this study and, and why? Um, I mean, most of the, the research that was done was just directly through these interviews and the survey that, that I did. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are some studies and reports. I mean, there's tons of studies and reports that look at leaders and leadership. Uh, but I wanted to do a couple of things. I wanted to bring in the qualitative and the quantitative aspect. And I specifically wanted to focus on CEOs because they are the, you know, the buck stops with them. Um, they are the people who ultimately are responsible for their organizations, for the people who work there and for the communities uh, that they impact. And CEOs have also gone through every other type of role as they climb, so to speak, that corporate ladder to get to where they are. Right. So I thought it would be really interesting to bring in their perspectives and insights, their stories, mm. and combine that with just general survey data to see where some trends and overlaps might be. And in that regard, I don't think anybody's ever done anything like that, at least nothing that I've seen. So I, I thought it would bring about some pretty compelling insights, which it did. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely a gap in, in the information available for sure. So. Yep. Uh, so I'm thinking of maybe just two or three of the questions that you ask these CEOs to acquire and, and to help answer your, the research questions. I might ask you to summarize a few of those. So what will be some of the greatest challenges for the leader of the future? What did you find? Yeah, that was one of the questions that I asked. I'll tell you what some of the ones were that came up, and then I'll tell you kind of a new one that I think is is emerging that a lot of CEOs are how could you say confidentially sharing with me because, sure. you know, perhaps they don't feel comfortable talking about this publicly. Um, so some of the big challenges really split up into two categories. There are human challenges and there are technology challenges. And I won't go through all of them. I think there's an image in the book. Uh, I think it's, uh, it looks like a little mountain, right? Is that the mm -hmm. one that you're looking at? Yes. Yeah. So the two kind of buckets that it goes down to are making sure that the organization is able to adapt 
and thrive, right? Focusing mm -hmm. on the futurized challenges, preparing the organization for the future and all of the things that go into that, which includes things like leading diverse teams mm -hmm. and includes things like, oh, I'm sorry, these are the humanized ones, leading diverse teams, focusing on doing good, making the organization human, which is a big theme that comes up, attracting and retaining talent, like all the stuff that has to deal with really with people and making the organization human. And then we have futurized challenges, which are really more about making sure that the organization is able to sustain and thrive going forward. And this is where we see things like shifting from short-term thinking to long-term thinking, adapting to the changes that we're seeing in the world of technology, keeping up with the pace of change, things of that nature. So those are kind of the two categories of challenges that we see, humanized and futurized challenges. Yeah, that makes sense. And so as you're thinking of some of those futurized concepts, and when you think of leaders today and in the next day, decade, what do you think some of those main differences will be? Today from the next decade? Yes. Well, I think a lot of the challenges are still very much relevant, but there is one that is creeping up, which I'm a little worried about. And it's kind of a weird challenge and it's, it's victimhood, not specifically on the part of leaders, but specifically on the part of dealing with employees who view themselves as, as victims. And these are employees who oftentimes they just complain, they point things out that are wrong. You know, they don't come up with solutions. And I've had a couple of CEOs that I've been interviewing and I've noticed this has been a, a trend ongoing over the past few months, even the past year or so. There's been a big shift in a lot of things that we're seeing with things like cancel culture, right? With being scared to speak up. And I feel like there are a lot of leaders out there who believe and feel that the balance of power has shifted a lot into the hands of employees. Interesting. And what I mean by that is if you were to look back 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was pretty clear that organizations had a lot of the power. They would dictate and they would decide the roles, the salary, like, you know, everything was in the hands of the organization and the employees, the current or prospective employees basically had to decide if that's what they wanted to go along with. Right. If you look at the world that we're in now, it has swung completely in the opposite direction. I have CEOs telling me that they're interviewing candidates uh, and even non-CEOs, they're interviewing candidates and they want these ridiculously high salaries. They want equity in the company. They want all these perks. They want all these benefits. And on top of that, they never even want to show their face in the company. It's sort of a weird thing to think about. Like if you were like, I think back to my, uh, my dad's generation, or even when I was younger, we're kind of at this point, which I find very bizarre. We're trying to incentivize people to go back to work. Right. Which is a weird thing to think about because work when I was younger was the incentive, right? I was incentivized to build a life, create savings, get a good job, to be able to provide for a family one day. That, that was my incentive. Nobody had to say, hey, Jacob, do you, you know, can we get you to come back to work? I was like, I want a job. I want to work. I want a job. And it's very bizarre to me that just years later, we're now kind of in this point where we're trying to convince people to go back to work. Like, hey, you know, here's why you should come back. And that to me is just an insane thing to think about. So the balance of power has very much shifted in the hands of employees. And we see a lot of employees who are almost playing the victimhood thing is what a lot of CEOs have shared with me. CEOs who kind of notice that a lot of employees are showing up. They are coming up with excuses for why they might not be able to perform. They are coming up with reasons for why the organization isn't catering to their needs. They're coming up with reasons for why they don't feel like and, you know, the list goes on and on for why X, Y, Z. And a lot of CEOs and leaders are starting to struggle with that. 
and they're starting to figure out, well, it seems like a lot of prospects and a lot of candidates are coming into the organization with kind of a victim mentality, like, you know, and, and how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that in a cancel culture world, in a world where everything that you say can be scrutinized, where everything that you say as a leader can be picked apart? And that's a very, very uh, real challenge for leaders. And the fact that we're kind of at this point in the corporate world where we're having to convince people to show up is crazy. Right. And one of the things that we're seeing a lot, especially in the tech space, so many layoffs that are happening now. So I think we're going to go through a process probably for most of this year of a little rebalancing where a lot of the layoffs are going to happen. Things are going to rebalance and reset a little bit so that the balance of power is a little bit more equal between employees and organizations. But right now it's definitely squarely in the hands of employees. And I think that's that's a big challenge for a lot of leaders out there. Absolutely. And for us in in our institution, of course, we have many educators that are in our graduate programs. So much of our population is fielding the same thing or similar, finding enough teachers, right, to teach and to to fill the void of, of those that are getting burnt out or that sort of thing. So as you think about even that realm, what are some of those skills of the future leader that they might need to possess and why to kind of combat this shifting of power? So there are four mindsets and five skills that I identified, which uh, which are called the notable nine. The four mindsets are kind of, I guess you can kind of think of them like categories, but they include things like having the mindset of the chef. And the mindset of the chef is about being able to balance two important ingredients, which are humanity and technology. We have the mindset of the global citizen, the mindset of the explorer, and the mindset of the servant. And these are all just ways of thinking about yourself as a leader and the people who work for you. So for example, the mindset of the explorer, it's really about having a growth mindset and seeing challenges as things that you need to overcome, not as obstacles that are going to keep you from doing what you need to do. Uh, Some of the skills, and there are five of them, these include things like being the skill of the coach, which is about helping make other people more successful than you. It's about things like the skill of the futurist which is about being able to see in terms of scenarios and possibilities. Uh, It's about the skill of Yoda, which is about emotional intelligence, specifically empathy and self-awareness. And then the other two are uh, the skill of the translator, which is about listening and communication, and the skill of the technology teenager, which is really just about embracing technology and not running from it. Right, yeah. So those are all obviously critical to think about. If you could choose any of those nine as... Maybe mm. the primary or or top one that you're seeing lacking or or be most viable for now. The trend that I found in serving these fourteen thousand employees is that when we ask leaders how well do you think you're doing with these mindsets and skill sets, a lot of leaders tend to think they're doing a pretty good job. But sure. when we ask employees who work for these leaders, right. how well do you think your leaders are doing? That's when we see the really big gaps, and the gaps mm-hmm. are across all the mindsets and all the skill sets. I think what makes this collection that I call the Notable Nine so unique is that you need to do all nine. Uh, You can't, for example, just have a growth mindset, then again, not have the mindset of the servant or not have the mindset Mm -hmm. of the global citizen. You know, these are, depending on how you want to progress in your career, you need to do all nine of these things. Absolutely. That makes sense. And you are considered futurist, right, as you're thinking about the future leader in those areas. So how would you maybe expand on what the futuristic leader is and how does one think? So one of the skills is called the skill of the futurist. And this was actually ranked by the CEOs that I interviewed as the number one most important skill for current and aspiring leaders. And the skill of the futurist is really about thinking in terms of different scenarios and possibilities. 
So leaders, oftentimes what happens is we make a decision, we pick one path, and we have a very linear one way of thinking. And it can hurt leaders, especially during times of change and disruption like the ones that we're in now. So the skill of the futurist is really about how do you think in terms of different scenarios and possibilities? What are some other things that could come up? What are some of the other things that might arise? And what should you do as a result if those things do come up? Kind of like if anybody's ever played chess, uh, that's kind of the best analogy that I use. If you ever play chess, you have to think in terms of what are the potential moves that your opponent might make and how might you respond to those moves. The skill of the futurist is very much about that same type of thinking. Right. That makes sense. Currently, my seven-year-old nephew beats me in chess, so that may be a skill I need to to build as well. And within that, the cone of possibilities you talk about a little bit in the book as well. What, what are those um, elements? So the cone of possibilities is really an analogy, and people can Google this too if they want. I think there are some images out there. It's really kind of a visual and mental framework for how to think about the future. The way that you use it is if you imagine that you're looking through the narrow end of a cone, the narrow end of the cone represents the closest time horizon. Mm -hmm. And the farther out in the cone you look, the farther the time horizon is and the wider the cone becomes, meaning that there's more possibilities. So the narrow end of the cone represents the, the now. And you can imagine in the narrow end of the cone, there's not a lot, it's very narrow. So there's not a lot of possibilities and there's not a lot of options because it's, you know, it's a tiny hole you're peering through. But again, the farther out you look, the broader the cone becomes, the wider the cone becomes, and the more scenarios and possibilities come up. So it's just a way of thinking, depending on how far you want to look, you need to understand that there's going to be more variation, more possibilities, and more scenarios. And it's just a good mental and visual way to think about that. Yeah, absolutely. That's helpful. And another concept you talk about is avoiding a typical day. Um, I'd like for you to expand on that a little bit. What is that? One of the things I became pretty interested in is I would ask a lot of these um, CEOs and top leaders at companies, what does a typical day look like for you? And I became very interested that a lot of these very successful people would say the same thing. And they would say, I don't have a typical day. It's not that their days are comprised of chaos and of just madness. It's that there's variation in their days so that they don't all look exactly the same. This might be meeting with different people. This might be attending uh, different types of meetings, but there's enough variation in the day where they are constantly learning, they are constantly growing, they are constantly developing. What I mean by that is that if, if you're showing up to work each day and every day looks the same, mm. you're talking to the same types of people, you're in the same meetings, your routine, your schedule, everything is identical, it becomes very hard to break out of that. And as a result, it becomes very hard to keep growing and learning and developing as a leader. So that's why one of the pieces of advice that I give to a lot of current or aspiring leaders is what can you do so that all your days don't look the same? And it could just be simple as meeting with somebody different, joining a different yeah. meeting, doing something so that it's not a carbon copy of each day. Sure. That makes sense. I love that. And really just to grow as a person, right? To continue to challenge ourselves and, and grow. That's amazing. Yep. Oh, good. Well, there's so much we could talk about for many of your books, but especially The Future Leader. Is there anything else that I should have asked that you would highlight from your books? Oh, my goodness. Anything <laughs> else? I mean, we covered some of the very important elements. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the other themes that I think is pretty interesting is that most people become a leader at some point in their career in their 20s. You know, maybe you're a supervisor in a retail store in your 20s. But most people don't actually get any leadership training until their 30s and 40s. Right. So there's a period of 10, 15, sometimes even 20 years 
where you are leading without being actually taught how to lead. Mm -hmm. And so the lesson there for organizations is you should be giving leadership training to everybody, not just people who've been at the company for a long time, not just people who made the most amount of money. Uh, leadership training and these mindsets and skill sets should be taught to everybody, not just a select few. So that was something that I found rather shocking and startling. And the other thing is, I talked about this gap earlier between how well leaders think they're doing versus how well people who work for these leaders think they're doing. It turns out that the more senior you become, the bigger the gap gets. Ah. <laughs> it's the classic ivory tower problem. Mm -hmm. So it's important to make sure that as a leader, you are spending time with employees at the ground floor. You are making sure that you're not disconnected from how the business actually operates, from what employees care about, from how they're feeling, from what's actually going on. And maybe the last thing I can touch on, the cover of the book is a lighthouse. And that was obviously done with purpose and with intention because it's meant to signify that leaders should be lighthouses, meaning they should build themselves up to be the lighthouse, but they also need to remember that without ships in the water, a lighthouse is useless. So right. as you, as a leader, are growing and developing, it's important to remember to guide other people on their journey as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's it's a very important thing for leaders to remember. Oh, absolutely. That's so good. And is there anything that you're working on that might surprise our listeners? What's the next research project? So the next one, kind of building on this theme of victimhood, I guess, if you want to call it, my next book is on leadership and vulnerability. Oh, okay. The reason why this conversation of victimhood came up is because I was interviewing a lot of these CEOs and asking them about leadership and vulnerability and what that means. And they kept telling me that sometimes, and not always, it's not meant to be that all employees are doing this, but sometimes there are employees who might use vulnerability as a crutch, mm -hmm. or they might use vulnerability as a way to manipulate, or they might use vulnerability for the wrong intentions. And so this is where this idea of the victim mentality came up. Mm -hmm. And really what this comes down to is as an employee, if there is something that you do not like in your company, if there is something that upsets you, if there is something that frustrates you, the worst thing that you can do is simply walk around and point things out. Mm. Nobody likes that, right? And this is regardless of what it is, whether you're looking at diversity and inclusion, whether you're looking at what your workday looks like, whether you are unhappy about how somebody's talking to you or a manager, the worst thing that you can do is just walk around and say, this is wrong, that's wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong. Because, well, it does a few things. Number one, it gives you a bad reputation. Mm. Number second, it doesn't propose any kind of a solution. Right. If you want to succeed and thrive, if you want to become a leader, you need to move away from the victim mentality to the problem solver mentality. Meaning don't just point things out, try to come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're not a part of a diverse and inclusive team. Well, what's your? how do you think that that problem can be solved? Yeah. You don't like that you have to drive to work every single day and you want a flexible work environment. Well, don't just say, I want flexible work, come up with a plan. Like, how is that going to work? Sure. Right. How, how are you going to communicate? How are you going to collaborate? Are you going to show up ever? How are you going to stay on top of deadlines? Come up with solutions. Don't just point out problems. It, you know, partially it's with social media, partially it's with a lot of what's going on in, in politics and with the social environment. Mm -hmm. It's just very easy to point out things that you don't like. And it's very easy to point out problems. And it's very easy to, to default to this. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so I really want to encourage people to think of themselves as, as owners and as problem solvers instead of just victims or people who are complaining or pointing things out. Right. Yeah. We can own our own experience. Yeah. At the very least, speak up and say something besides just pointing out what's wrong. Sure. Yeah. And you'll be much valued in that role as well. 
You will. I mean, you're thinking and acting like a leader before you are in that leadership role. Mm, so that. if you aspire to be a leader, I think that's a very powerful thing that you can start doing. Yeah, so good. Beyond all the, the work and writing that you're doing, is there anything that you're currently reading our listeners can add to their their list of books to read? I'm reading two books. Both of them are not business books at all. Sure. One is, oh, now I got to remember the books. So one is, I think it's called Mafia, The Five Families. Okay. So I'm I'm really interested in in the mafia in you know just like the old sure. school Al Capone kind of yes. kind of characters and 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 how that all came about I find that very fascinating. I was a big fan of the show uh, Boardwalk Empire. Oh sure. Mm-hmm. And the other one that I'm reading is called Freezing Order by Bill Browder. Okay. And the subtitle I'm just looking at it now it's a true story of money laundering, murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Ooh. And it's, I mean, it's a fascinating story. I've just started it, but it's just the the, the corruption, mm-hmm. like that. I, I love those types of mysteries, whether they're fiction or nonfiction. So those are the two books I'm reading. Yeah, those sound intriguing. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jacob Morgan, and sharing your insights and research in these topics. We, we greatly appreciate having you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks to Jacob Morgan for giving of his time and sharing his wisdom as we reflect on leaders that inspire and influence education, the business world, and our greater world. Thanks so much for all of you for listening to Transforming Education Leadership Lessons. You have many options for podcasting, and we appreciate you spending time with us. Please consider subscribing and rating our podcast wherever you listen to help us share with others. As a leader in education, you matter, and how you lead matters to a whole bunch of people that you serve on a daily basis. You were created for significance. As always, a special thanks to Gary for being the actual host of this podcast, Mike Stokes for his technical and editing help in making this podcast a reality. From all of us, until next time, inspire and influence. (laughs) 